Good morning. So glad that you're with us this morning. I'm going to make this announcement, same one I made last week. It's a good announcement to have to make. But if you would, for the next uh, foreseeable future, I guess we could say, if you would move in and move up, we would greatly appreciate it. Um, we don't have any assigned seats here, which is a good thing. So if you don't mind, if you would move up, move in and leave room for our guests. We have people that are coming in weekly to see what we're about, who want to come and worship with us, and we want to accommodate them. We do have plans to make uh, room for more parking, and also uh, we do have the capacity to set out some chairs and things like that, but we, we have a plan in place, a structure that um, we're ready to go to the two services model that we have tried uh, if we need to do that as well. But uh, as kids are coming back as students, as school is getting back in session and people are coming back from vacation, the next few weeks I think are going to tell the tale. And uh, we are actually a little crowded this morning. So if you would, move in, move up, and then also uh, We'll be giving you announcements in the weeks to come about what we will do if there is an overcrowding situation. We're glad that you're here, and we want you to be here. We want to make room for you to be here. So, into that. There is a holiday coming up. You know which one it is? No, it's not Labor Day. It's not Columbus Day. October the 19th is National Evaluate Your Life Day. What is National Evaluate Your Life Day? I don't know. I was hoping you might. Actually, there's a website called Check-A-Day, I believe is how it's pronounced, where you can type in the holiday and it'll tell you something about it, how to celebrate it, and all that. And according to the website, National Evaluate Your Life Day is a day in which you examine your life to see if you're making healthy choices, to see if your life is going in a positive direction. The website also gives us some suggestions about how we can celebrate this day. Ask yourself these questions. Am I using my time wisely? Am I waking up in the morning ready to take on the day's challenges? Am I in the right mindset when I go to bed? I really know what that means. Am I letting things that I can't control stress me out too much? And what do I wish to be known for? That's how you celebrate National Evaluate Your Life Day. Ask yourself those questions. Now, the author of the website also says that it can be a scary thing to evaluate your life. So just be prepared because when you look introspectively, you might find some things about yourself that you don't like. Are you going to confront those findings? Are you going to make the proper adjustments so that you can get your life in order? But the idea is to come to a healthier, happier you. I'm probably not going to celebrate National Evaluate Your Life Day. So if you don't get a card from me, please don't be offended. If I pass your way on October the 19th and don't say, hey, happy National Evaluate Your Life Day, don't get offended by that. And don't send me anything either. I don't care. But as silly as I might think this holiday is, I do think that it's good to do some regular spiritual evaluation. In fact, I think it's biblical. I think it's important for us to look at ourselves introspectively to make sure that we're staying the course, that our spiritual engine is running smoothly. I mean, we go to the doctor for regular checkups, right? At least some of us do. We take our car in for regular maintenance, at least some of us do. At least some of us look in the mirror every so often to make sure that our hair is, is combed, to make sure that there's no wrinkles, to check our makeup. Why not examine ourselves from time to time spiritually? 
to make sure that we don't need some realignment or recalibration. That's exactly what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 13, 5-10. Let's read there. Paul writes, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now, we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul says, in essence, it's evaluate your life day. It's time to look at your life and to make sure that you are on the right path. And here's why he's telling them this. And you probably noticed it. He's telling them this because human beings are really good at criticizing others. Can I get an amen? Absolutely we are, right? Instead of being a judge, we need to be a herald. We would profit the kingdom a whole lot more if we would seek to be a proclaimer rather than someone who sits in the judgment seat. Jesus had something to say about that, right? Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. We won't read through all of it, but it says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the same way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. It was the attitude of the Pharisees that Jesus was warning the people against. He was saying, do not take on that mindset and that mentality because they have placed themselves in the judgment seat and they are judging by their own self-imposed standards. Jesus is saying, don't do that. And the reason why you shouldn't do that is because you're not qualified. You know, I know the Bible says something about judging with righteous judgment in John chapter 7, verse 24, and I certainly believe that, but that's not typically what we do. We don't typically judge with righteous judgment. We typically try to judge motives. And you know why we're not qualified to judge motives? Because we don't even know why we do what we do. And yet we're going to tell somebody else that they're doing this for this reason. And so Jesus says, just steer clear of that. That's not your job. That's not your responsibility. Luke states it this way, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. In other words, can you take what you give? The standard that you use to measure others is going to be the standard that is used against you. So evaluate your standard. Are you prepared to live up to the standard that you're using to measure everyone else by? Paul in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1 said something about this as well. He said, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. The Jews had a standard of judgment. That standard that they used for the Gentiles was harsher and stricter because they believed that God was going to be harsher and stricter towards the Jews. Remember, we said it a few weeks ago that the Jews actually believed, many of them did anyway, that the Gentiles would be used as fuel for the fires of hell. They, of course, would be exempt because they were God's chosen people. And Paul basically says, no, you're not exempt. You're not any better off than they are. In fact, you're using a standard that's going to be used against you, so you better be careful. Here's the deal. 
Judging others reveals a lot about our hearts, and therefore we need to be careful in how we measure another individual. The only standard that we need to be using is God's standard, and even then we need to recognize that we're not God, right? I think it would be good if all of us used a little bit of uh, Michael Jackson theology. You know what that is? One of my favorite Michael Jackson songs, Man in the Mirror. Part of it goes like this. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. The first thing I want you to notice concerning Paul's words to the Corinthians is he is saying, start with the man in the mirror. Look inwardly before you look outwardly. Be the change instead of trying to always be the critic. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Start there, change that first before you start looking outwardly. You see, there were many in the church in Corinth who were questioning Paul's authority. We talked about that last week. Many were testing his apostleship. Over and over again, we see Paul addressing this. People were feigning respect for Paul's apostleship. They wanted him to present concrete evidence so that they could do a thorough review of his character and see if he passed the test. And so Paul makes preparations to come for a visit. And make no mistake, this was going to be a showdown. The time for flapping your gums was over. Paul was coming to set the record straight. It was time to be quiet, and Paul was going to shut their mouths. You can back up in Corinthians and find more instances where Paul defended his apostleship. But before, in preparation for his visit, he turns the table on these Corinthian brethren by stating, yeah, you do need to do some examining, but not on me. You need to examine yourselves first and foremost. That should keep you busy until I get there. Test yourselves, he says, to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Start with the man in the mirror. Because it may be that you're being hypercritical of a Holy Spirit-inspired apostle and you're not even filled by the Spirit yourself. In modern-day terms, Paul is saying, evaluate the standard you use. For the young people, check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's what he's saying. You know, it's interesting to note that in the original language, this word examine, parazzo, indicates a sustained examination. In other words, it is constant and ongoing. You're always looking at yourself. You are to continuously examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And I certainly think that this admonition transcends time. I do believe that this is good advice for us as well. When it comes to examining ourselves, there's one question that stands out above all others. When you're taking an exam, what's the one thing you want to know? What's on the test, right? I mean, if I'm going to study, I want to know what I'm studying. I want to make sure that I'm studying the right thing because I don't want to be surprised. The worst thing you can hear from a teacher is, okay, pop quiz, right? We don't like pop quizzes. We want to be prepared. And so we want to know what's going to be on the test so that I can study properly. When I was in college, I took a class for my health minor called Drug Use and Abuse. And the teacher of this class was uh, less than stellar, we'll put it that way. He didn't really teach, he just got up there and talked. We had a textbook, but we never went through it. And I learned very quickly, in order to pass his class, I'm just going to have to listen to him ramble and try to pick out what's going to be on the test. 
But every now and then, he would repeat things, and I thought, that's going to be on the test. If he's repeating it more than once, it's going to be on the test. And I heard him say one day in class, there are six liters of blood in the body, and he said that more than once, and I thought, that's going to be on the test. And so I wrote that down. There are six liters of blood in the body. And the day of the test came, and the first question on the test was, how many pints of blood are there in the body? And I said, I, I mean, are you serious? You know, it's bad enough that you're not a good teacher, and now you're going to make me do conversions? We've all had teachers like that. We've had teachers that were less than stellar, and we come into their class the first day of college, and they say something like, you know, 50% of the people are going are to fail my class, and I think, well, then you're not a very good teacher. Or they'll say, well, nobody, just, nobody makes an A in my class. Just nobody makes an A. Well, if I do A work, I expect to have an A. I'm paying a lot of money for this class, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but the object or the goal is to come in here and learn something so I can take it and use it in everyday life, right? Except college algebra, I've never used that again. But I mean, most classes, right? You come in, you sit there, and you want to learn so that you can apply it to whatever your chosen profession is. I don't think the goal is to make it as hard as possible so you can't grasp it. But we see that some. We've all had teachers like that. So what kind of test is Paul referring to? When he says to test yourself, what's he talking about? Is it a pop quiz? Is it multiple choice? Is it true, false? Is it fill in the blank? And the answer is none of the above. This is an open book test. And one that we better be studying for. James states it this way. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. To be an effectual doer of God's word is to live intentionally. It's to live out your purpose. What is my purpose? We've talked about this recently as well. Philosophers have pontificated on this question. Many people throughout the centuries have asked the question, what is the secret of life or what is my purpose? I'm going to tell you this morning in case you forgot. Your purpose is to glorify God. That's it. And it's the same for every one of you. I'm sorry if that's not more complex, but that's the answer. The answer to one of life's biggest questions is very simple. Glorify God in all that you do. That's it. There's not some deeper meaning or anything like that. It's just to glorify God, to submit to his will, to live faithfully, to be lovingly obedient, to do as he has asked you to do, to seek to live out his commands. That is your purpose, to glorify God. So what is my purpose? Very simple. Now, We've got to be careful here because I think what happens all too often is we get confused about our purpose. We tend to think that my chosen vocation is my purpose. Well, I'm a teacher. God put me on this earth to teach. That's my purpose. No, that's not your purpose. I'm a mother. God put me on this earth to be a mother. No, that's not your purpose. I'm a father. God put me on this earth to be a father. No, that's not your purpose. Those things are the vehicle to carry out your purpose, but they're not your purpose. Your purpose is to glorify God. Can you glorify God in your role as a teacher? Absolutely, and you should. 
Can you glorify God in your role as a mother or father? Absolutely. In fact, that's biblical and you should. But let's not get confused here because I think what happens all too often is people want to do something in life and make it their purpose and they just want God to sign off on it. Like the guy who says, God put me on this earth to play football. No, he didn't. He put you on this earth to glorify him. Can you do that through the different things that you participate in in life? Absolutely. But your purpose is to glorify God. Actually, the question, what is my purpose, is not completely appropriate. The more appropriate question is, what is God's purpose? What is his purpose for my life? And throughout the pages of Scripture, we see individuals who were not crazy about their God-given purpose. Moses was not crazy about leading God's people out of Egyptian slavery. Gideon was not happy with the idea of going into battle being outnumbered 450 to 1. You know, we see Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, didn't want to preach, but he had to. He had this fire in his bones. Jonah was not keen on the idea of going to preach repentance to the Ninevites. And then, of course, we have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. He basically says, if there is any other way, God, but may your will be done. So over and over again, we find people in Scripture who are not exactly high on the idea of doing God's will, but over and over again in Scripture, we see people who submitted or deferred to God's will because they knew it was best. And that teaches us a lesson, right? Is that maybe God's will for my life is not something that I truly appreciate. Maybe it's not something I truly want to engage in. Maybe it's not something I'm crazy about, but God's will must always win. That brings us to a second question on the test. Whose agenda are you living for? Are you a forgetful hearer who examines himself in God's mirror and then walks away not doing anything about it? Or are you intentional? Are you someone who just lives for the day or lives for the moment? Or do you live for the purpose that God created you? It's like the guy who went to the doctor. And he said that he hurt all over. Doctor said, where does it hurt? It hurts everywhere. Can you be more specific? No, it hurts everywhere. And so the doctor said, well, take your finger and touch your shoulder. Ouch, that hurts. Well, take your finger and touch your knee. So he touched his knee and he said, ow, that hurts. He said, take your finger and touch your forehead. And he does. He says, ow, that, that hurts too. I hurt all over. And the doctor concluded, he said, well, no wonder you hurt everywhere you touch. You've got a dislocated finger. And that's what's going on here with the Corinthian brethren. There was one thing that was causing all of their pain. One thing was affecting everything else. What was that one thing? Well, it was the fact that they failed to live out their purpose. The church in Corinth was messed up, and it could all be traced back to that one thing. Remember when, remember when Paul rebuked them for not dealing with the sexual immorality that was occurring right in front of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? You might remember when uh, Paul rebuked them for how they were misusing their spiritual gifts. You might remember another time when Paul talked about how they should examine themselves in reference to the Lord's Supper because they were not taking it in reverence. They were not giving it the proper magnitude and significance and meaning and recognizing what it should mean for their lives. There was division. There were damaged relationships. There were abuses in worship. There was sexual misconduct. There was doctrinal error. And all of it could be traced back to one thing. Why did the church in Corinth have so many problems? Well, 
is because there was so much pain related to their lack of living out their purpose. They were not glorifying God in what they did. Let me ask you this. What are the salvation issues listed in the Bible? Can you name them? Well, I can give you a few. Based on just two passages of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, also Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, here are the, the biblical salvation issues. Let's put those on the screen. Sexual immorality, idolatry, uh, adultery, homosexuality, greed, murder, stealing, corruption, reviling. These come straight from God's Word and are mentioned as absolute salvation issues, okay? That's not an exhaustive list, but that's, that's only from two passages. You could find more. What's on your list? Because here's what we do as Christians oftentimes. We put things into one of two categories. Salvation issue or non-salvation issue. And that's how, that's how we like to categorize things. Salvation issue, non-salvation issue. Problem is, when you have a list mentality, where does it end? I have a good friend of mine who was asked to, to record some videos for a broadcasting network that was Christian-related. And he agreed to do it, but before he could come on and record his lessons, they wanted him to fill out a questionnaire to make sure that he was sound, which I can understand maybe. That questionnaire was 150 questions. And it started with, do you promise to only use the King James Version of the Bible? You know why it was only 150 questions? Because they probably stopped it there. They could do 250. Because when you have a list mentality, when that's the way you look at things, there's no end, right? You can continually come up with things, constantly come up with things to add to your list. Many Christians want to make Christianity about the thou shalt nots, about following all the rules. But in doing so, they almost always presume that things are salvation issues when the Bible doesn't address them as such. They want to draw a line that's not there. You know, the Bible may not even address certain issues. You know, and so we, we're left to debate them, right? And we've got to put them in one of two categories. What about watching R-rated movies? What about dipping tobacco? What about, you know, overeating? What about gambling? What about dancing, you know? We've got to look at all those things, right? And we make our own assumptions, even though the Bible maybe has inferences to some of these, but we, we don't always know where to place them, and so we defer to salvation issue. But when you have a list mentality... The question you always ask, the first question you always ask is, will this send me to hell? And that's not the best question. It's not even the right question. Of course, the other side of the coin is the Christian who says, well, I don't necessarily agree that that's good behavior, but I'm not going to say it's a salvation issue. And of course, that's kind of a cop-out, isn't it? Because if someone is engaging in a behavior that is not God-honoring, then certainly that's something that needs to be addressed. It's a cop-out to say, well, you know, I don't think that's a salvation issue. How do you know? Have you checked? Have you examined yourself in the mirror of God's Word? If someone has a rebellious or selfish mindset, that's a salvation issue, right? Do you believe that anything could become a salvation issue? I do. Yeah, anything could become that. If it becomes first place in your life, if it becomes an idol, if it's something that takes over and takes control of your heart, then certainly that places it in the category of being a salvation issue. If God doesn't come first, anything that comes before God is an idol, that's a problem, right? But we always start with, will this send me to hell? And it's not the best question. The best question to ask on the front end is, 
is related to our purpose, and it's this. What glorifies God? What glorifies God? What pleases Him? Because if that is our mindset, if that is our mindset, what pleases Him, then our our supreme desire, our number one priority, will be about engaging in behaviors that are God-promoting. And we'll steer clear of those and be cautious about those that do not. Whose kingdom are you advancing? Another question we should ask as we examine ourselves. For Christians, the litmus test is often, will this send me to hell? The best litmus test is, what pleases God? What glorifies Him? You know, we sold our house I guess at the end of last year in December, and we moved out of town a little ways. And for a little while, we owned two houses. If you've ever done that, that can be a little stressful. But we've done it the other way, where we put our house on the market, it sold in four days, and we didn't have a house to go to, and so we had to rent for a year. And that, we didn't enjoy that process either, so we figured we'll try this one. Well, that's it's pretty stressful, owning two houses. Especially when you know you're putting it on the market in December, that's not the best time to sell a house, Right? And so you're on pins and needles for a little while, hoping that it sells. And then you get that person who puts in an offer, and you accept the offer. And then from the time the offer is accepted until the day you sell the house, you've got your fingers crossed, right? Just hoping that something doesn't fall through. And during that time, you have a home inspection usually. The buyer wants the home inspected to make sure there's not something major that they need fixed before they'll go through with the sale of it. Sometimes the bank demands that. And so... You get that call that they're going to do a home inspection at like 10 o'clock on Friday, and the whole time you're looking at the clock just thinking, oh, I hope they don't find something wrong. What if it needs a new roof? What if the plumbing's all messed up? You know, you don't want a major expense. And then you receive the home inspection through email, and you don't even want to open it. But you do because you have to confront the findings, don't you? You have to look at it. Whether you like it or not, It is the inspector's job to go over that house with a fine-tooth comb. To be honest with you, some of the stuff they find sometimes will drive you crazy, but still, you can't ignore the home inspection. you got to look at it, and you've got to confront the findings. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. This Bible is doing you no good unless you open it up and look at it as a reflection. You've got to see yourself in the mirror of God's Word, and you've got to be willing to confront the findings. Are you willing to look at yourself in the mirror of God's Word and say, I don't like this about me. I am humbly troubled by this. And therefore, I've got to do something about it. If you have a problem, then fix it. Because the worst thing you can do is receive an F on the Day of Judgment. I don't know where you're at this morning as far as your spiritual walk. I know we have a lot of visitors each week. I know we have some folks that may be curious about what it means to be a disciple. We'd love to study the Bible with you. I know some of us are reeling because of loss of a loved one or loss of a spouse even, and it's kind of lonely. Some of you are dealing with health difficulties. We'd love to pray with you. We want Oldham Lane to be a family of God that helps people get to heaven. And the road to heaven, it's got a lot of bumps. It's got some peaks, but it's got some valleys too. 
Maybe you're not on that road yet. Maybe you're someone who has contemplated discipleship and you're thinking about it and you, you want to study a little more. Or perhaps you've studied and you want to put on Christ in baptism. We want to help you, whatever your need is. This is a family that loves you and will take care of you. Don's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.